Amen. Open your Bible with me this morning, if you would, to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. If you read through the Gospels carefully, and you look at all of the stories and references to the disciples, you can, if you work at it, kind of piece together a lot of the character qualities of the different disciples. Not all of them, but, but most of them. You can kind of piece together what they were like. When we think about the Apostle John, who wrote this Gospel of John, and then 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and, and Revelation, we get an interesting picture of a guy that we might not have liked very much when he first began to follow Jesus. The picture we get is of a guy who's pretty arrogant and proud. He's compulsive. He's harsh. He's maybe a little condescending. He's deeply critical of others. He appears to have a little bit of an anger issue, maybe a bad temper it's not exactly the kind of guy we would have imagined that Jesus would have thought, I think he would make a great disciple. You might remember he and his brother James were known as the sons of thunder. They were the two who wanted, more than anything, to have those special seats someday in the kingdom to the right and the left of Jesus. And so imagine what's in their mind. They're thinking Jesus someday in his kingdom is going to be seated on a throne. And certainly there's two seats beside him. Wouldn't it be great if my brother and I could be in those seats? They wanted those seeds, but you remember this part? They didn't want to ask Jesus for them because who would be arrogant enough to ask for those seeds? So they send their mother to ask for those seeds of Jesus. You remember that? That was John. And so it is. The mother goes and says, hey, can my sons have these two seeds? It tells us that the other disciples were furious when they found out about this. There is a moment in which John found out that there was another man casting out demons in the name of Jesus John was very upset by this. He went to Jesus immediately as if Jesus was supposed to stop anyone else from doing anything kingdom-wise. And Jesus rebuked him that it was fine for other people to be doing these things. It was John who was with Jesus when some people were critical of Jesus and ran him out of town. John's solution and his suggestion to Jesus is, Jesus, why don't we call down fire from heaven and destroy them all? So that's the apostle John. We do get this interesting picture of a man who is arrogant and compulsive and harsh and, and critical. What's interesting is this. There is no one else in all of the New Testament that implores us more to love than John does. No one teaches us more about the love of God and the need to love others more than John does. It is John who reminds us that if we don't love others from our heart, then we don't love God. That our true affection for others and for God himself is what matters most. It is John who teaches us, I would say uniquely, more than anyone else, maybe apart from David, the need for intimacy with Jesus and, and just humble sitting with Jesus and time with Jesus and receiving from Jesus and, and quietness before Jesus. It is John who leads us, as we've been talking about, my goal for all of us through our study of the Gospel of John, into what we call loving union with Jesus, closeness and intimacy with Jesus. So my question would be, what changed? How did John go from this arrogant, quick-tempered, condescending, harsh man into someone who teaches us more than anyone else the need for intimacy and loving union with Jesus Christ? I think there, there are two things that happened. I think first, John experienced personally the love of Jesus. It's interesting, we're told that John was the beloved disciple. He is the one that Jesus loved. 
And I think as Jesus was trying to figure out uniquely how to deal with John and his specific personality and how to change John into his image, Jesus decided that what John needed for his heart to be transformed was love. And John felt, writing to himself, I'm the beloved disciple, deeply loved by Jesus. And it changed him. But I think not only did he experience the love of Jesus, he, he witnessed the love of Jesus. He just watched the way in which Jesus loved people. Surprised moment by moment by the love of Jesus. It was John and John alone who recorded and saw it and believed John 3.16. That God the Father loved us so much that he would be willing to go through the greatest pain to give us the greatest joy. That whoever, whoever, whoever including John, whoever would believe would come to find the life of Jesus inside of them himself. And I really believe it's, it's moments like the one we're going to see this morning that begin to change John. And the reason I believe that is because John is the only one who records this story, John writing so that we might believe and have life, John writing so that we might experience what he experienced somehow felt that this story was critical to us believing and knowing and having life in Jesus and coming like John to be transformed by the love of Jesus himself. In John 4, we have the longest recorded conversation that Jesus ever has with anyone. And so as I think about just these weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to spend four weeks in John chapter 4 and my goal and my prayer would be is that as we look through this text and this conversation that Jesus has, that we too would be changed by his love. We're only going to look at verses 1 through 15 this morning, but I want to read 1 through 30. Look with me together at John 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples... Judea and departed again from Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, asked me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. John chapter one, it tells us that there was rising tension between John the Baptist and the Pharisees. There was a delegation that was sent to John the Baptist from the Pharisees to ask who he was and what he was doing and why he was baptizing. That tension continued to increase, but it seems that in chapter 3, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, that the attention is shifting from John the Baptist to Jesus. And as the attention is shifting, so is the tension. And so now it is, it seems, that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are moving their attention from their frustration with John the Baptist to Jesus as more and more people are coming to him. And that's exactly what sets the context for those first couple of verses. It says, now when Jesus learned, the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So as the pressure is mounting and they're more and more concerned about Jesus and more and more frustrated with him, Jesus decides to leave. And you say, well, why is it that he would leave? Well, we have to know some reasons he's not leaving. He's, he's certainly not reason, leaving because he's avoiding conflict. John 2 makes that very clear as he overthrows the tables in the temple and whips, uses a whip to drive out the money changers and the animals. He's not avoiding conflict. He doesn't mind conflict. He's not leaving because he's scared. John 10, 18, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down. Jesus is choosing the moment in which he's going to die. He's sovereign over his death. He's not concerned or worried or or scared of the rising tension. We get a little clue maybe in the reason he left. In the little word, verse 3, he left Judea and departed. That word's left means he abandoned something. I think it points us back to John 1, verse 11, where it says that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, to those he gave the right to be children of God. We saw in chapter 3 the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a picture of the rising hatred of Jesus Christ, the skepticism of Jesus Christ by his own people. And so as his own people turn against him and his own people come to reject him, Jesus moves further out. What it's a picture of is is the mission is, is moving It's really a picture of Acts 1-8, which says that that the mission goes to Jerusalem and Judea and then to Samaria. And so it is that Jesus is is moving out. And so the rising persecution is the reason for the mission to continue to move out. And then it says this in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. That phrase, had to pass through, really means it was necessary, absolutely necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. Here's what's interesting. That's not geographically true. 
Now, we know that statement is true, but it's not geographically true. What it means is this. He didn't have to go through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. He didn't have to do that. There were multiple ways he could have gone. That was the quickest way to go, but it's not the way the Jews usually went. As a matter of fact, and you notice this from our reading, the Jews had such deep hatred and disdain for the Samaritans that when they needed to travel, they would go through the Jordan River in order to bypass Samaria because they didn't want to get anywhere near the Samaritans. They despised the Samaritans. So although this was the quickest route, this wasn't the normal route, it would have been unusual for Jesus to go this way because no Jew went this way. So why would it say it was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria? Well, not because it's geographically necessary, but because Jesus had there a divine appointment. It tells us in chapter 3, verse 8, that the wind of the Spirit is blowing and the way in which the God moves is he moves like the wind and we don't know where he's going and why he's going and what he's doing. But John 3 makes it very clear that if anyone's born again, it's because the wind of the sovereign Spirit of God is moving through. And I'll just tell you this, chapter 4 tells us that the wind of the Spirit is moving towards Samaria. The wind of the Spirit of God is moving Jesus towards Samaria where he has there a divine appointment. There's a woman there that he has to meet. Now, she's not looking for him. She doesn't even know who he is. The point is not that she's seeking Jesus. The point is that Jesus is seeking her. And verse 5 says that he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And it was there at that place in which Jesus had an appointment. It says in verse 6 that Jacob's well was there. Now, we don't know exactly all the context of, of Jacob's well, but it does seem to point us back to the place in which Isaac's servant met Isaac's wife, Rebekah. It seems to be the place in which Jacob met his soon-to-be bride, Rachel. It seems to be the place in which Moses met his bride, Zipporah. There is a special little connection there at that well and people who had met their brides there. This is why I'm encouraging Skye to take a singles mission trip to the well there to see what happens. <laughs> so it does seem to be that there is some strange connection about the amount of people that have met their brides at this well. And you say, well, that's a strange connection. Jesus isn't going to meet a bride. Of course not. Or is he? Do you remember what John the Baptist says in Chapter 3, verse 29, when he says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Remember when John's saying that Jesus is, is like a groom who is coming to get his bride, and he's coming to pursue his bride, and to rescue his bride, and to save his bride. Jesus is the groom coming to get his bride. And so you could say yes at this special place where it seems throughout history men have met their bride. Jesus is going to gather his bride. He's going to gather his people and letting us know that it's not just the Jewish people. He is gathering from every tribe and nation and tongue. It says there in a really interesting phrase that Jesus sits wearied as he was from his journey. So I just want you to picture Jesus exhausted. And he comes to the well and he just sits on the ground and leans his back up against the well. He's tired. But I think what's interesting is when it says that he is wearied from his journey, it's not just a reference to the most likely six miles that he had walked that day through the desert to get to that place. He was tired from that, but that's not what it means. 
When it says he was wearied from his journey, it was talking about the physical, emotional, and spiritual toll of the journey on his life. He was tired. He was weary. I mean, we just looked at the first couple of verses as the rising tension of Jesus, more and more people are coming against him and the religious leaders are coming against him. And it's not just that people don't like him. His own people have rejected him. Well, that's hard and difficult. He has been rejected by his own people, driven out from his home by his own people who are looking to kill him. He's wearied from his journey. And I just meditated on that for a little while this week because I have to say, I think you know this too. I know what it's like to be wearied from the journey. Don't you know what it's like to be not just physically tired, I've had a long day and worked hard, but to be physically, emotionally, and spiritually just tired. And I think Hebrews chapter four that says Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. Jesus knows what it's like to be wearied from the journey. But here's what I think. When I'm wearied from the journey and the exhaustion of, uh, of maybe the, 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 the burden of, of, of carrying the burden and weight of so many other people's issues and problems and all of the just difficulty of the journey. What I think about when I'm weary from the journey, the last thing I'm looking to do is have a long conversation with someone. That's the, that's the last thing I want to do. But Jesus intentionally set at this moment in the heat of the noon desert sun, wearied and exhausted from his journey, physically, emotionally, spiritually spent. And he sat right there and he waited this divine appointment he had with a woman who was about to show up. It says in verse 7, so a woman from Samaria came to draw water. It's not just a divine encounter, it's a surprising encounter. <laughs> you know, the location of this story right here in chapter 4 is intentional, coming right after chapter 3. Because this woman paints the exact opposite picture of, of Nicodemus. In every possible way, Nicodemus was a man and she was a woman. Nicodemus had a name. She was nameless. He was ceremonially clean. She was unclean. He was moral. She was immoral. He was respected and she was rejected. He was the ruling elite. She was the lowest class. He was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. Every single possible way, John is trying to show us that after Jesus encountered this well-respected Jewish leader from the ruling elite that his next encounter was someone that could not possibly be more different. I mean, we're to be shocked, really, when we see a woman from Samaria. It tells us that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. It says that in chapter 9. I mean, in verse 9. See, the reason is this. The Samaritans were originally from the northern kingdom. And when the northern kingdom was invaded by Assyria, what happened is this. Most of the Jews were forced out of the northern kingdom when the Assyrians came in. But the Assyrians left some of the Jews there. But then what they did is this. They went to all these other nations that they had conquered. And they brought a bunch of the remnant from all these nations and put them all in the northern kingdom. So here's a small remnant of Jewish people surrounded by all of these pagan nations and over time, they married into these pagan nations, which not only created a really strange race of people, it created a people with all of these strange religious cultures and practices. And so the Samaritans considered themselves Jews, but the Jews hated the Samaritans. Let me tell you how deep the disdain was for the Samaritans. Jews were not allowed to touch anything a Samaritan touched. 
So if Demeritan had touched a glass or a utensil, they would not touch that glass or utensil. At the moment they touched it, they believed that they would be unclean before God because they touched something a Samaritan touched. This is the reason the Jews bypassed the Samaritans and wanted nothing to do with them. And we're to be surprised of all the people that Jesus would talk to, that he would go out of his way to have an encounter with. It was this woman because she was surprised. She's the one that said in verse 8, why are you talking to me? The disciples came back and were surprised. What is he doing talking to a Samaritan woman? But that surprise is the way we're supposed to feel because she is a visible picture of what John just told us in John 3, 16 and 17. Jesus did not come to condemn, but he came so that those might be saved. Jesus did not come to do what Nicodemus would have done to this woman, which is bring condemnation upon her. Jesus came so that this woman might be saved. It was this woman who Jesus went out of his way in order to meet. You see, Nicodemus never saw his need for grace. He just saw everyone else's need for grace. And so it is, Nicodemus missed the grace of God because he didn't see he needed it. But what John wants us to see is that all of us, even Nicodemus, are a lot more like this woman than we would ever imagine. And so there is Jesus, the woman of Samaria comes, and he begins to initiate a conversation. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, give me a drink. Now she can't believe that He's engaging her in a conversation. That's when he, she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Remember, the normal response would have been absolute disdain. You really would have pictured a Jew kind of moving back and getting as far away as they could from a woman of Samaria. Just by touching her, being close to her, they would have been ceremonially unclean. But I want you to think about that. And I want you to think about the request that Jesus made. So remember, every Samaritan knew that the Jews so disdained them that they would not touch anything that a Samaritan touched. And yet Jesus said, would you get some water for me and hand it to me? In other words, with that little request, give me a drink, what Jesus is saying is, I'm not afraid of your uncleanliness. Isn't that an amazing statement? Jesus says, I'm not afraid of your uncleanliness. No, give me a drink. And can I just say to you this morning, he's not afraid of yours either. The very thing that makes you think Jesus would run away from you is actually the very thing that draws him closer to you. That very thing that makes you feel so unclean and makes you think there's no way Jesus would want me, there's no way Jesus would come and encounter me is the very thing that draws Jesus near to you. It is the fact that this woman was so unclean that made Jesus go and sit by the well and wait for her to come. With that one statement, he begins to say to her, listen, I'm not afraid. Then he says this to her in verse 10. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, he would have given you living water. If you knew who was talking to you, you would have asked me and I would have given you something, not just you giving me something. Now it's interesting, the idea of gift or give or given is used eight times in these verses, one through 15. Eight times is the idea of a gift or something that's being given. And when Jesus says there, I would have given you living water if you knew the gift of God, that phrase gift of God always is used to refer, listen, to some gracious gift of God. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, well, what is the gift of God? Well, it's John three sixteen. The gift of God is is the gift of salvation, it's the gift of, of grace, it's the gift of life, it's the gift of Jesus Christ. 
He's saying if you knew that God had given you a gift, that it was God giving you his only son, if you would have known who I am and what I've come, you would have asked for me something and I would have given you living water. And this completely goes over her head. Verse 11. She says, sir, but you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Can I just ask you to think about what's going on here and just think about it in your own life? Here's this woman, desperately thirsty, longing for something, having gone through five husbands, living with another that's not her husband, certainly looking for something to satisfy the longing of her soul. And standing in front of her right there is the giver of life. John 1, the giver of life is right there and she didn't know who he was and and he says to her, if you knew who was standing here, you would ask and he would give you life. But can I just, just ask you to think about that phrase for just a minute. There is no verse that has been more powerful to me this week than verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Listen, What it's saying is this, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for everything. If you knew who I was, you would ask me for life. If you knew who I was, you would ask me for the satisfaction of every longing that you have. You would ask for more. And here's what I think about that. I think most of us, like her, constantly underestimate what Jesus can do for us. I mean, we come here to worship Jesus. We say, Jesus is present with us. Jesus is here. And we get on our knees and we can talk to Jesus. And I think what Jesus says to us is, if you knew who I was, you would ask and I would give you everything. And so what we tend to do with Jesus, we get satisfied with asking Jesus to bless our food and we never ask him to satisfy our souls. Can I just tell you, Jesus did not come and sacrifice his life to bless your food. He came and sacrificed his life to satisfy your soul. And so why it is, why is it that if we know who Jesus is, we wouldn't ask him for more, ask him for more. I'm sitting there singing this morning. This verse is so on me. I just said, Lord, I want more. I want more. I want more of you. If you knew who he was, you would ask for everything. What are you asking from Jesus? Are you asking for him to satisfy every longing of your soul? Are you asking something big or something small? We stand here in the presence of Jesus and don't even ask him for life. If you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you everything. Some of you this morning need to ask him for more. You need to see that he gave his life so that you could receive life, so that he could satisfy your soul, that there's resurrection life available for you. If you'll ask him for you, unbeliever, for you, believer, what are you asking from Jesus? If he is who he says he is, ask for more. Jesus continues the conversation. He says this, she responds, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And here's the key. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. Because the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let this rest on us for just a minute. Whoever drinks of the water I give, so something only Jesus can give, it is something that we must drink from. It is for anyone who would drink of the water will never be thirsty again. 
Because what will happen is the water Jesus says that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, what I want to give you is I want to give you a spring of water, fresh water that, that would reside inside of you. And it would satisfy every thirst that you have. Every longing of your soul would be satisfied by this water that I want to give you. This is not a new picture. This is maybe one of the most familiar metaphors of life in God that we have in the Old Testament. Our vision for you, which we talk about all the time, a vision for you to experience and enjoy and expand God's presence, all flows from this little picture in Genesis 2. If there is any picture I want you to have as a part of this church, it's this picture. We're going to talk about it a lot more in the month of January. But the picture in Genesis 2, 10 is this, that there is in Eden a garden. And there is a river that is flowing from Eden into the garden. And then four, four rivers flowing out of Eden that go out of the garden. It's a picture of the fact that everything in Eden is satisfied by the presence of God. It is the rivers of God's presence flowing into Eden. Therefore, Adam and Eve have everything they need. They're fully satisfied. And God's desire is not for them just to be satisfied with his presence, but for his presence then to spread to the ends of the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is the exact word picture that Jesus gives in John 7 when he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink and out of him will flow rivers of living water. What it means is this, you were created for the presence of God. You were created for intimacy with God. You were created to drink heavily from the wells of God and God's desire is not just to give you a drink, but to give you a well. His desire is not to give you a drink, but to give you a well. His desire is that as you come to him by faith and trust him to be the savior of your life, that the very spirit of God comes to dwell inside of you. And the spirit of God is the source of the life of God. And so the satisfying life and joy and peace and reality of God now dwells inside of us by the power of his spirit. And it is spirit of God inside of us continually satisfying our souls and drawing us near to Jesus. Day by day, moment by moment, the very spirit, the very life of God inside of us. And any time we want to, we just draw near to the Lord and we drink. It's not elusive. It's not distant. It's there. It's inside of us if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason we so desperately need this is because of a little word picture in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13. Listen to what it says in Jeremiah 2.13. For my people, the Lord says, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He said, here's the evil of my people. What they have done is they have rejected me, the fountain of living water, and instead they've created their own cisterns, these buckets, these leaky buckets. And they're carrying around all of these leaky buckets, filling them with a thousand things, and they're wondering why they're not satisfied. They're not satisfied because they have rejected the source of life in order to create for themselves something else that they think will satisfy them more. Is that not the story of every human being? 
what in the world is going to satisfy me? And so this woman decided five husbands might work, and they didn't. So she got another one, and it still didn't work. But all of us have something like this. We're carrying around these leaky buckets of everything that we're consumed with, trying to find some sense of life and meaning and satisfaction in a thousand things, and they're all leaky buckets when Jesus says, I've come to give you a fountain of living water. You see, the point of John chapter 4 is this, is that life without Jesus is an ever-increasing thirst and ever-decreasing satisfaction. Life without Jesus is an ever-increasing thirst. I'm just thirsty and thirsty. And an ever-decreasing satisfaction. We are never satisfied. But listen, life with Jesus is ever-decreasing thirst and ever-increasing satisfaction. Can I say that to you again? Life without Jesus is ever-increasing thirst. I'm just thirsty, I'm thirsty, and ever-decreasing satisfaction. No matter what I do, I'm less satisfied. But life with Jesus is an ever-decreasing thirst and an ever-increasing satisfaction. This is what Jesus is offering this woman. I would like to give you something that would satisfy the thirst of your soul. He looks at this woman and says, you're more thirsty than you could ever imagine you are. Look at verse 15. I think there's something significant here. She still doesn't get it. She, she doesn't even know he's the Christ in verse 25. But look at what she says. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Here's why I think that verse is significant. She doesn't know who Jesus is, but I do think she knows this. She's tired of coming to the well at noon in the heat of the day. Not when all the other ladies came to the well, because she was not only rejected by the Jews, she was rejected by her own people. She was an outcast from her own people. No one goes alone to the well, and no one goes alone at noon to the well. You go early in the morning and late at night, and she came alone at noon. Why? Because she didn't have anybody else to go with. She was filled with shame and self-hatred and humiliation. And I think every single step she took toward that well, every single day at noon, was a reminder of the humiliation and shame and emptiness of her own life. And what she's saying here is this, Jesus, I don't know exactly what you're talking about, but I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to keep coming here anymore. I, I don't want to come to this well anymore. I would love to have whatever it is you're talking about. And the reason I think that's so important, listen, I, I want to conclude with this, is that I really think that's the first step for every one of us. The first step for every one of us is not a full understanding of Jesus, of everything Jesus is and all that he has to offer. It is simply beginning with the recognition that I don't want this anymore. I don't want leaky buckets anymore. I don't want to continue to be dying of thirst for something and have nothing to ever satisfy my soul. And then to recognize that the gift of God is the gift of the love of the Father and the sacrifice of the Son and the filling of the Spirit of God that is yours the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ, that every moment you desire to get close to Jesus, you will drink from the wells that he has put inside of you and be satisfied. And you will be satisfied to the degree that you drink from him. Because the answer is always Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. The only all-satisfying source of life. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.